we will be in Ezra 9 and 10. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now as we take time to look into Your Word, we acknowledge that without Your guiding Spirit, we won't understand anything and we won't be able to even apply the things to our own lives. And Lord, that's what we long for. We want to understand and we want Your Spirit to help us know how to put these things in practice in our own lives. And so we ask for You to do that in us here today. And we pray in Your name. Amen. Please be seated. During one of the... um, one episode of the old TV, TV show MASH, which is about a, a hospital unit that was near the front lines that was there to try to patch people up and, and save their lives or send them back into, into combat. And one of those uh, shows that they were portraying a, a young man who had been a star football player in college was looking forward to a, a, a career in pro football, lost, uh, uh, his leg was mangled by a mine, and they brought him into the uh, operating room, and, and he, he looked at the doc, and he said, can you save my leg? And um, this thing was, you know, been destroyed, essentially. And uh, the doctor said, well, I'll do my best. And then he looked at the doctor and says, if you can't save my leg, don't save me. And that was based on his own, yeah, i got to have two legs in order to play football, thinking. Well, in the in the... In the story, uh, of course, in order to save his life, they had to take off the leg. And um, as we look at how, think about how traumatic that is in the sense of having to cut something off in order to save a life, that's the kind of thinking we need to be thinking as we head into these chapters. There's some serious things that are going to go on in these chapters that need to be dealt with decisively and finally. And so as we get to this last chapters of of Ezra, please understand we're going into some things that were really hard then. And even now as we read them and study them, we're thinking about it and going, oh my, that's, that's, that's hard. But one of the things that God has always been um, encouraging His people to do is to Make sure that they are following God and that they are following Him and not giving in to, to sin. So as we jump into verse 1 today, remember that Ezra's been there now about four months. And he was sent by the king of Persia back to Jerusalem to do a number of things. But one of them was to teach God's Word. And, and to teach God's Word and to help people learn to obey the law, God's law. And, and so... Um, You know, here he is, you know, they've delivered all of this treasure, and in verse 2, or in verse uh, verse 1, some of the leaders come to him and say, hey, we've got a serious problem here. As a a chosen people, as the nation of Israel, um, we have not done what God told us to way back when he first brought us out of Egypt and gave us his law and brought us into the promised land. And, and, and he said, you know what? There have been people who have been marrying in, in marrying people who are not of the faith. And see, that's really the, the bottom line here. It isn't, it isn't something about, well, this person is, is not a nice person or we don't like the fact that they speak a foreign language. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with believing in God. As we get through this, keep that in mind. That as this thing is being dealt with, 
He, it's the fact that they had married outside of the faith. They'd married someone who was not a believer in, in the Jewish Old Testament sense of the word. And so um, these officials come to Ezra. They say, this is what's going on. There's been an unfaithfulness. And that's, that's the word for spiritual adultery is what they're saying here. So there's been unfaithfulness on behalf of the, of the, the people of, of Israel. Um, they've taken some of the daughters of the Canaanites for their own sons and for their, for themselves in some cases. And, and so he, they come to him and they tell this to Ezra. And, and, and remember the rich imagery of the prophet Hosea. Who, whose wife ran off and eventually he had to buy her back. And, and, and the whole idea that she was, she was almost in prostitution and he brings her back. That's the imagery that's being portrayed here, that the people of Israel are being like Hosea's wife. And so that's what's going on here as you, as you see this. And, and they're saying we have been unfaithful. We have been committing spiritual adultery. And so, Ezra's return in the beginning of the teaching of God's Word had, a, had apparently awakened the conscience of many of the people who had seen these things happen and watched this happen and had not said anything or done anything. And so that's what's going on here as we get into uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, you know, they, they were doing the temple sacrifices now. They were doing the, the ceremonies, the rituals. Um, all, all of those things were wonderful, but God also wants not just those things. He wants the heart as well. And so that's, that's what the difficult part here was. Uh, yeah, they were doing sacrifices and they were doing um, the feasts and all of those things. But there was a problem, a very deep spiritual problem. Verse 3, this is Ezra's response. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. So he hears this. He's not aware of it. He hears this, and he hears that even some of the leaders of the, the nation are involved in this. And he rips his clothes, and he pulls out his hair and his beard. And this is a sign of extreme, extreme mourning. This is deep mourning. Uh, and so he is in mourning over the sins of the people of Israel. And, and he's in, in complete grief. He's appalled and he's, he's in shock, horrified that after all it has taken to bring the people back to the land and get the temple built again and get everything going, that this has been going on. And he's horrified by that. Verse 4 then says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. I love that phrase. Those who trembled at the Word of God. Those who were had a deep desire to see God's Word obeyed. That's what's going on in their hearts. And, they are, and, and he sat there appalled until evening. But they come and they gather around and, and, and they're longing to see what God's going to do. And, and Ezra is sitting there, total shock, completely horrified at what has been going on. Now, there's an implication here. I'd like to just pause before we continue. Um, verse 4 said, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord. 
at the Word of God. They trembled in fear, perhaps. Uh, Maybe they realized the price of disobedience in the past had ended up with exile, slavery, or death. Uh, they trembled maybe with eager desire to see that God's honor would be restored. I mean, this is a, this is a big deal. To us, it doesn't maybe seem like it because we're not, um, living in that Old Testament Jewish time frame. Um, but this is, this was big. And so they trembled at the Word of God and they maybe had this deep desire to see that God's Word would be obeyed, that God's Word would touch all of them in a special way. Remember, the people of Israel at this time, do not have a Bible of their own. Okay, Ezra is perhaps the first person who compiled all of the Old Testament books, but it was in a bunch of scrolls and parchments. And people of Israel couldn't go home and grab their Bible and open it up and say, okay, Lord, I, I'm going to be reading here. I'd love to, love to hear from you as I read your Scriptures. So they didn't have that. Um, now, some people think that Ezra actually wrote Psalm 119. And as I, as I was thinking this through this week, I thought, I wonder if maybe Psalm 119 was not a response to this whole situation of people ignoring God's Word and doing whatever they felt like. Verse, Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11 says this, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your Word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so if this is what Ezra has done, I'm not saying that's the case. It's my personal speculation on it. But if this has happened in the nation and as a result of what what happened, he wrote Psalm 119. Imagine what just these verses would say into the situation. Think about that. How can a young man keep his way pure? How how can I make sure that I don't disobey God and and, and marry into a pagan culture? And and it's living according to your word. Um, How do I keep from going astray and, and disobeying God? Again, it goes back to his word. So there's just kind of uh, some things in these verses. Let's go ahead and put the next slide up there, Daryl. How can I be pure in my walk with God so that I don't sin like those who do not know you? Okay, that's, that's kind of the thought that's there. How can, I, how can I be pure in my walk with you? First one is obey God's Word. Learn what it says and do what it says. Very simple, but that's what he's saying here in these verses. Um, how can I make... My walk pure with God. Seek God with all my heart. Pursue a closer relationship with Him. That's the point. I'm to be considering Him and learning and growing in my walk with Him. The next one, ask God for help. Ask God for help. Um, This is one of those ones that I think sometimes we forget. Maybe we ask for the hard and difficult things that we know we can't do, but maybe the daily stuff we think, oh, I got this. On one level, we need to be saying, Lord God, I can't live this life without you. I can't do this. I can't obey these verses the way I'd love to without your help and strength in my life. I can't do this. Lord, help me. I desire to do your will. I want to obey. So give me that desire. Give me that will. Give me the ability to obey. Lord, that's, that's what I'm asking for. And the last one, hide his word in my heart. That's, uh, you know, 
I've hidden my wor- your word in my heart. Why? So that I won't sin against you. What an incredible thing. And, and you know, I understand there are some people, and, and I'm jealous of them, quite honestly, who can memorize whole books of the Bible and have huge portions memorized. I have always found it really, really hard. Uh, and there are people that are, that are like that. I, I, it's not that I haven't worked at it and haven't tried. Um, and I have memorized uh, many verses. But if that's really difficult for you, then just take one of the cards and, and, and put it in your pocket and pull it out during the day and read it. Or put it up on the refrigerator or the mirror in the bathroom so that several times during the day you go by and you stop and you read it. Think about it. Because that's the whole point of having God's Word in our heart. Perhaps another set of verses in Psalm 119 would apply to the situation that we're talking about here. It says in verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. What a great statement. I delight in your decree. I delight in your word. And not only that, I will not neglect it. I will not take it for granted. I will not just kind of, you know, let it be something that I barely think about. So trembling at God's word means, I think there's a whole bunch of things here. It's the whole idea of being full of awe and reverence, uh, being totally amazed. The trembling at God's word would mean on one level rejoicing in obedience, finding joy in the fact that God has called me to do this and I'm going to do it and rejoice as I do this. Um, reflect on, on God's Word. The whole idea of turning it over in our minds and meditating on it, continuing to focus on it, reading it and thinking about it. Uh, and the third one, delight in God's Word. Trembling God means I delight in it. I'm thrilled. I can't get enough of it. I'm, I'm excited to grow and to learn and to put into practice those things that I'm hearing and seeing and reading. And then the last one, never neglect God's Word. It means don't, I've got to make time, I've got to put the effort in, but I don't ever want to neglect God's Word. So how do we respond to God's Word? Can it be said about us that we tremble at God's Word? That there's that sense of awe and inspiration as we think about God's Word? Is it something that in our own hearts we are saying, God, I, I long for Your Word to have an even bigger impact in my life. And I think that's just one of the things that we see from, from Ezra here, and, and especially from the whole idea of trembling at God's Word. And then verses 5 and following, we've got Ezra's prayer. Um, so he gets up from having sat there basically in awe and stunned silence for a period of time, and then he, he rises from that time in verse 5 and falls on his knees and and. And so now he's, he's been sitting there appalled. Now he rises, falls on his knees. And, and in a sense, this is a humble falling before God. And he lifts his hands in prayer. Now, I like to imagine what that actually looked like. And, and maybe he was kneeling and looking up and lifting his hands saying, Man, we are in desperate need. Help. However that looks, then he started to pray in verse 6. And he says right off, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you. So maybe his face was bowed. I'm too ashamed and disgraced, God. And, 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 and he begins to talk about how, you know, our sins, you know, 
our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword, captivity, and pillage of humanity. We've been through this before, Lord, when we went away from You and we followed other gods. That's when Jerusalem was destroyed. That's when people were killed. That's when we were taken into slavery, Lord. And, and all that's left is, is this little remnant. And so here he says, you know, we've been through this. And, and yet you have left us a remnant. You've given us the temple and you've left us a remnant. Now, when you're thinking of a remnant, it's saying this is a remnant of the nation. Maybe a great way to picture that is to think of the nation of Israel as a, as a big blanket and a little corner got ripped off. That's the remnant of Israel that's left. This is not a great big nation anymore. This is not a nation with, that could field a couple hundred thousand soldiers in, in battle. This is a remnant that's left. And so as you hear that word, the righteous remnant, this is the remnant that is supposed to be following God. It's the remnant that came back to set up the temple and all those other things. He says, leaving us a remnant. And then he's talking about the whole idea of a firm place in his sanctuary. Our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. And then in verse 9, he says, though we were slaves, our God has not deserted us. You know. Now, when he says we are slaves, we always have to remember in Ezra and Nehemiah and, and the, those that came back to the, the promised land after having been in exile, they're coming back, but they're still not really free citizens of Israel. They're still subjects and subject to the king of Persia. And so keep that thought in mind because the bondage could mean that, you know, well, we're still in bondage to, to Persia. Or it could mean we are now in bondage because of the sin that has been committed. And, and it, may, it may be one or the other, or it may be one of those situations where what's being referred to as both and. It is, yes, we are in bondage because we're still slaves to Persia, and we are in bondage even more because of the behavior of some of our people who have disobeyed God's law so blatantly. Now, verses 10 to 12, there's kind of a summary of the Scriptures that warned them about these practices before they ever entered the land. Um, and in verse 10, he says, you know, what can we say to this? We have disregarded the commands that you gave. So, Lord, we've disregarded what you told us to do. Your servants, the prophets, said the land you're entering is possessed and is polluted by the corruption of the people that are there and, and their detestable practices. And, and so God had said, you need to go into the land and you need to settle it and you need to drive these people out and away. Um, and yet what happened? They didn't. And they ended up worshiping some of the Canaanite gods at various times in Israel's history, bringing all kinds of different things down on them, all kinds of judgment on God's behalf. You go to the book of Judges, you've got that endless cycle where the, you know, he brings an oppressor in and they suffer greatly. They finally turn back to God and God raises up a judge to bring them back and start walking again and then they fall right back into the same cycle again. It's all the way through. Israel just kept going back into the idolatry and the worship of other gods. And then in verse... Um, 12, therefore do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. 
Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. So God said, this is what I want you to do. And it's exactly what they did not do. They disobeyed God and, and, and went a whole totally different direction. Verse 13 says, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds. As was very clear. He's not playing any games with the language here. And, and he says, this, this has happened to us. All the things that have happened to us is because of the things we did. Our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than we deserve. And that, that's, that's what he says. You know, we deserve a whole lot more than this. And yet, you've been gracious and you've been merciful. And again, you've given us a remnant to continue. Um, God could have destroyed them. Remember what happened to the ten tribes of the north? Um, they were taken away by the Assyrians and never never came back. Those ten tribes disappeared. And so now you've got the Judah and, and <clears throat> Benjamin, and, they're, and they're, they're the ones that got taken to Babylon, and now you've got this small group that has come back. Ezra's question focuses them on the current sins. So here, here Ezra begins to say, all right, now let's see what we should do about this. Verse 14, shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Are, are we really going to do this again? It's almost as if he's asking. And, and, and he says, would you, speaking of, to God, would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor. And this, this is dark, heavy stuff that Ezra's uh, talking about and praying about here. Um, on one level, what he's saying is, how could we even think of doing this? How could we buy into this over and over in the past and now today, after all that we've been through, coming back from Babylon and all the rubble and the destruction of Jerusalem around us, and we finally build the temple, and now this. How can this possibly be? And so, he basically says, God, you know, we are guilty and there's no way we can even stand in your presence. He goes on into chapter 10. And and it says this in verse 1, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. And they too wept bitterly. They wept bitterly. Over their sin, the sin of the nation. In verse 2, you've got someone who comes along, his name is Shechaniah, and he basically says, we have been unfaithful to God. Um... By marrying foreign women. And then he says, but in spite of this, there is still hope. What an interesting thing to say. I mean, this is a serious thing that has happened. And this is being brought out. And yet he stands up there and says to Ezra, yeah, we've been unfaithful. It's terrible. But there's something we can do about that is almost what he's saying. There's still hope for Israel. And he said, let's make a covenant before God. Let's promise that we're going to deal with this. Um, and then he says to Ezra, rise. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. 
And so <clears throat> they decide they're going to send a, this proclamation to everybody saying, you've got three days to get here. Uh, everybody needs to come to Jerusalem so that we can deal with a matter of very grave sin. Um, then Ezra, verse 6, withdrew from before the house of God, went to the room of Jehohanna, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Now, it's possible. Some people think that maybe, you know, they sent out this proclamation, you need to come in three days, and then we're going to, you know, deal with this problem. It's possible that he fasted until that time. That's a possibility. We don't know. That's speculation. But he definitely is taking it um, as something incredibly serious. Um, now, just to kind of make this very clear, uh, people of Israel, they could he could marry a, a woman from another country or another uh, nation as long as that person believed in God. It wasn't an issue of nationality. It was an issue of belief. And so we got great examples of that. Rahab, who was a Canaanite in Jericho, was married to an Israelite man, and, and she's in the line of the Messiah. And then you've got Ruth, the Moabite, who marries Boaz, again, in that line of the Messiah. So it wasn't that you couldn't marry outside of Israel. It meant you had to marry someone of the same faith. And these women had believed in the God of Israel, and so they were able to marry. And so that's, that's an important thing for us to remember. <clears throat> and... Um, as we move through chapter 10 here. So within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered in Jerusalem. And if you read the verse, it's interesting because they're all out there trembling, and you're thinking, okay, so maybe they're scared of God. And they said, well, they're trembling, but it's also raining down really cold rain. So, so they're in the rain, standing before the temple, and they're trembling, probably for both reasons, you know, what God has, what God has uh, done and what, uh, what the rain is doing. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting because they're talking about what they want to do and, and a number of things happen there. Verse 14, a, a, very, a key verse, says, Let our officials act for the whole assembly, then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time. So they stood up and said, listen, this is something we can't handle today. It's something we cannot take care of in a day or two. It's going to take time. And not only that, we don't want to rush this. We don't want to get into this and just, you know, start doing it as quickly as we can. We want to look at each and every situation. And on one level, I think what's being checked on is, does this, has this woman become a believer in, in, in the God of Israel? If so, not, not a problem, not an issue at all. So that had to be done individually. That had to be done couple by couple. And so they set up these times <clears throat> to do this. And... Um, it's interesting because Ezra says, you know, you've been unfaithful, you've added Israel's guilt, now we need to confess your sin and we need to do God's will. And then he talks about separating yourselves, and that's the part that they're coming to. What's going to happen here uh, with those who have married a pagan wife who continues uh, to be someone who is a follower of Baal or one of the other gods of the Canaanites? So the people's response to all of this in verses 12 to 14 was, you're right, we've sinned. We have disobeyed God's law. There's no question. Uh, but this has to be done carefully, and it cannot be done quickly. And so that's when they agree to do, the, we'll set a time and people will come. Um, just kind of for our own information's sake, it took about three months, probably working every day, except the Sabbath, 
working through this, getting people to come, doing the interviews, doing everything. Every pagan wife was given the opportunity to show that they really were a believer in Yahweh, or even given the opportunity to become a follower of Yahweh if they wanted to. This was not something that was just boom and and and, and you're done and, and you're out of here. It was it was done carefully. It was done deliberately. Um, if they chose to continue in the worship of their pagan god, then then that brought on whole separate set circumstances, and, and a divorce was required at that point. Now, I came across this quote, which I found really interesting. Uh, within the surrounding culture, not speaking about the, the Bible or um, the, the law, God's law, but within the surrounding culture, divorce appears to have been common and uncomplicated. So as they have gone back and studied many of these cultures, that kind of thing did happen for all kinds of reasons. Uh, economic implications being the greatest concern. So it, it was the kind of thing where uh, these divorces happened and women and kids many times were sent back to either their father's home or, or a brother's home or something like that. And many times then they would be married again to someone else. And so that, just kind of to put in mind, this wasn't something that was, that was a harsh thing that nobody understood. It was something that did happen within the culture, although not for the reasons that Israel uh, was giving. Now, in verses 18 to 44... Um, we have a long list with the names of those who were involved in this sin. And um, there were 17 priests, six Levites, one temple singer. So 27 were from the temple and three gatekeepers and then 84 ordinary people. So we're not positive of the population of Israel, but say 150 to 200,000 perhaps at this point. We know that 50,000 came back, and, and so it's, it's hard to know exactly. But if there was 200,000, it's 111 out of the 200,000 uh, were involved in, in what was going on here. And it's interesting because it, on this note right there, where all the names are listed, um, the book of Ezra ends. Now, one thing we have to remember is that Ezra was not one book and Nehemiah a second book. It was all one book at the time uh, in, in the Jewish canon. Uh, we break it that way because the second half is mostly about Nehemiah. And, and we will take a break here, and we're going to deal with Nehemiah next summer. But on this sad note, God's law has exposed sin, and sin has been dealt with, and the people have obeyed God. Now, this was really hard, but it brought them back into fellowship with God and it brought them back and taught them again, once again, the seriousness of listening to what God's Word says and following through in obedience. Now, there's an implication here. Um, why was this such a big deal? After all, only thing they really did was marry some women who were not Jewish. Uh, the command of God in the Old Testament was clear, however. Uh, and it just kind of to clarify it in our minds. It was not about race. It wasn't a racial thing. It was about religion. It was about faith. It was about um, believing in the true God and being linked with someone who believed in the true God. Secondly, it wasn't about skin color. Um, it was about sanctification. Now, again, trying to make these things you know, illiterate, sometimes you stretch it too far. <laughs> but sanctification really is the whole idea of how we walk with God. So it wasn't about someone's skin color. It wasn't about you aren't, you don't look like us. It wasn't anything like that at all. It was about faith. We are seeking to walk in faith. 
um, you're supposed to be able to walk together. Uh, and if you worship Baal, you could not be walking and worshiping God. That's an impossibility. And so the two things were incompatible, belief in Baal and belief in God. Bringing those two things together could not happen. It was an impossibility. Third thing, it was not about culture, whatever the cultural implications of all of that was. It was about truly believing and obeying God. And, and it was about transcending any culture because it didn't matter what the person was or where they came from if they believed in God. That was, that was the, the secret. Now there's a description of the Canaanite gods found in Psalm 106. And I just warn you, it's one of those sections that's, it's hard to read sometimes, but Psalm 106 is, a, is kind of a survey of Israel's history. They're talking about, okay, Israel, and they go through all these verses. But Psalm 106, 34 says, They did not destroy the people of the land, the Canaanites, as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. They committed spiritual adultery. And I'm not even going to go into that more than that because this is just, this was hideous. It's an evil that you think about and you just can't imagine then. It was clear that the people of Israel knew God's law and they knew why it was forbidden to do this marrying into another faith. I just, again, I read that again and went through this last week and I just, how could, how could you do this? How could a parent or a grandparent... Watch something like this. I don't understand. That, that shows the level of evil to which the Canaanite nations had sunk. And now the people of Israel have a chance to start over, to follow God, obey His Word. And some rejected God. They, they really apparently didn't think this was such a bad deal. Maybe they really wanted to get into the, you know, there was a lot of immorality involved with the worship of the Canaanite gods. And, and, and maybe the Sacrifices just didn't bother them all that much. But it was blatant disobedience. This was in-your-face kind of thing. They knew better. They knew they shouldn't do this. And so it's hard, hard, hard to imagine. And, And no wonder God says, deal decisively. Deal with this. Deal drastically with it. It needs to be stopped. It needs to be cut off so it does not continue. I do not want the remnant to be brought into that and then totally disappear. I mean, we're talking about saving especially the line of the Messiah. That was really what it's about. We were going through the Kings, remember, and Chronicles. One of the big things was the line of the Messiah was always protected in some special way. And now you've got this small group, this remnant, and that's the point. That's why you don't mingle. That's why you don't get into these other evil things. Now, please understand, this did not happen because of ignorance. They knew. Um, this was in your face, God, we're going to do what we want. Um, that's why Ezra and those who longed to obey God's word reacted so strongly. Now, 
Remember Ezra 9 and 10. Um, this is a description of what happened. It's descriptive. It is not a prescription for something we should do. Okay? That's an important thing to remember. There are places in the Scripture where we know God says, this is what you need to do. And it's all over, it's all across the board. There are other places where we're seeing and hearing about something, but we are not told we need to do the same thing. Okay? So that's one of the things we need to remember. This is disturbing and it's supposed to be. The evil had to be dealt with decisively. And that's really important for us to remember. Now, what does the New Testament tell Christians about marriage? And, and I'm going to look at 2 Corinthians 6. I understand it's not a passage about marriage specifically, but it shows the problem of a believer and a believer marrying. There's a principle there. It says, Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship do light and darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Okay, Very, very clear. And I said the passage is not specifically about marriage, but it applies. It applies as an application. came across this quote dealing with uh, 2 Corinthians 6. Do not form any relationship, whether temporary or permanent, with an unbeliever that would lead to compromise of Christian standards or jeopardizing consistency in Christian witness. And it's a great way to kind of think, okay, I don't want to be involved in any way in, in something that would compromise my faith. Now, the New Testament is clear that um, a believer should not marry an unbeliever. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul says, now, if you're married and, and your spouse is an unbeliever uh, and they want to stay in the marriage... Stay. Let that be. Um, but if not, then they are, they are not bound. They are free. You, you can let them go. And so, perhaps one of them got saved after they were married. We don't know the reasons why Paul put it that way, but he made it very clear that just because the person was a non-believer married to a Christian, that they didn't have to immediately separate. Okay, I, I got saved. You got to leave. No, that, that's not the case. Paul said, if they want to stay, great, stay in the marriage. That's, that's a good thing. Now, <clears throat> one of the hardest things I've had to do as a, as a pastor was to deal with that whole idea of someone wanting to marry an unbeliever. It's just a really hard thing to do. And uh, I, I, most of the time, will say, listen, let's pray for them to be saved. Let's do whatever we can to help that happen. Um, but I have a real hard time saying I will do your your wedding when I know that you, you know this is not something you should do. Let's go to the takeaway. I'm really quickly out of time here. I just want to share a couple more thoughts. <clears throat> it's very possible that these priests uh, knew uh, they they knew they understood what they were doing was wrong, and yet they chose to do it. And we don't understand why the priests, Levites, especially. Um, Maybe they thought, you know what, God, God doesn't care about this kind of stuff anymore. Or maybe they, they said, hey, I'm doing the rituals, I'm doing the rules, I'm doing all this stuff, I'm, I'm at the feasts, I'm helping offer sacrifices. That should be enough, right? And the answer to that was absolutely not. God wants hearts, not just actions. Um, 
The prophet Hosea puts it this way. The Lord says, I delight in faithfulness, not simply in sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging God, not simply whole burnt offerings. So he's saying, listen, you know, your offerings, you know, if you're obeying the law and coming in offerings, that's great, but if your heart's not there, then your offering's kind of worthless. It's not worth anything. I, I want you to be faithful to me and I want you to acknowledge me before all of these sacrifices. And God wasn't saying, I don't want sacrifices, but He was saying, if you come and, and you are not walking with God and your heart's not right with Him, the sacrifices are meaningless. Go ahead and give them if you want, but they don't mean anything. God delights in sacrifices brought by people whose who are faithful and who acknowledge that He's the one that that they obey and follow. Micah reminds us what God requires. One of my favorite verses. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What does God require? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. We need to deal decisively with sin in our own lives. And I think that's the part we get to here in the application. Um, God was telling the people of Israel, this needs to be handled. And this needs to be taken care of and needs to be done decisively. And if we are struggling with something, whatever it may be, we need to maybe, well, not maybe, we need to come before the Lord and say, Lord God, I need, I need help with this. I, I don't want to continue in this. I do want to Act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with you. And, and Lord, help me to do whatever is required. Whatever you bring into my heart and life to do, help me to do that so that this is not a part of my life any longer. Ezra reminded everyone that God wanted their hearts. And He wanted them to be dedicated to Him. And then Hosea and Micah, remind us that we want to delight in Him and be faithful to Him. And we want to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord God, that uh, You've given us Your Word. And um, there are times when we read it and it's, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. And yet we also know that You are God of mercy and grace. And we thank You for that. Help us to learn the lessons of the book of Ezra. And we ask in Your name. Amen.